Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and I am happy as always to be joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Joe, what are we going to talk about today? Thank you, Jessica. Lots to talk about today. We're going to talk about the current state of Idaho's transgender sports ban. There is a bit of Florida voting rights news. Florida Republicans have passed voting limits in a broad elections bill that echo that of Georgia, their neighbor to the north. Merrick Garland is remaking the Department of Justice in a new image reminiscent of past departments of justice. And Newsmax has issued a public apology to Dominion voting systems. And that may reflect the power of defamation lawsuits to combat disinformation. So let's jump right into that. Late last week, the right-wing television outlet Newsmax issued a public apology to one of Dominion Voting System's top employees over its false allegations that the voting technology company engaged in fraud in the 2020 election. That employee, Eric Coomer, oversees product strategy and security for Dominion Voting Systems Corporation. Coomer has spent the last several months in hiding and fearing for his life and the safety of his family after having been doxxed by people who falsely believed that former President Trump won re-election after Dominion's voting machines. Now, these are machines that handle electronic voting in 28 states, flipped votes from Trump to now President Joe Biden. Now, what is doxing, you may ask? Doxing is when people or groups find and publish private personal information about a person on the internet. Usually this is malicious in nature. So he's been in hiding for several months now. Coomer has said that the personal addresses of his parents, siblings, and even ex-girlfriends have been posted online. Some of them have received threatening letters, daily voicemails, and the usual army of online trolls. So this is pretty serious business here. Then fast forward, late last week, Newsmax apologized to Dominion and Coomer in a public statement, and Dominion dropped their defamation lawsuit. Max's acceptance of the truth shows that defamation claims could be a tool to combat disinformation. Now, this, why is that germane to our conversation? According to a recent poll by CNN, 70 percent of Republicans believe President Joe Biden didn't win enough votes to be elected. So we've got lawsuits, threats, an apology and a drop lawsuit. So, Jessica, what is happening here? Break this down for us. Uh, A lot of bad things and a lot of good things. So let's start with what you just said, which is there's a recent poll that 70 percent of Republicans believe President Joe Biden didn't win enough votes to be elected. Now, I wrote, shameless plug, I wrote an MSNBC op-ed about this public apology, and I said, what's the difference between believing that the election was stolen and believing you have to crack the window for the tooth fairy? And I know this is going to, again, sound partisan, but we have a problem of disinformation in our country. We have a problem when so many Americans believe that something happened when it just didn't. So let's review why we know this election wasn't stolen. One, this election was heavily litigated. Remember, we talked about lots of election law cases. There was no case in federal court, in state court, no case where the judge was a Republican or the judge was a Democrat, where a judge found that there was any evidence that the election was stolen. So let's move away from the judiciary for a second and look at election administration officials. As we know, our elections are not just run state by state, but in many situations, really county by county. County registrars are either nonpartisan officials 
but they have partisan affiliations as private individuals. And there was no credible evidence from any state or local election official that this election was somehow filled with widespread voter fraud or that it was stolen. So I'm not making a comment on Republican ideology at all. I'm making a comment on reality. The election was not stolen, period. And so the fact that we have 70% of one of our two major parties saying that two plus two is five is something that we have to address in our country. And um, I think that leads us to why we had this lawsuit. Jessica, why did Newsmax apologize? This seems like a sandbox kind of thing. He said, she said, no, I didn't. No, you did. And now we have a major news organization apologizing to someone and another corporation. Well, as you said, in telling us about this case, Newsmax was facing a really serious defamation suit. And some of the right-wing media's favorite supporters of President Trump, like his former personal attorney Rudy Giuliani and his attorney and supporter Sidney Powell, essentially made it a habit of going on television and peddling in these lies. And a lot of these lies started to focus on the idea that Dominion voting system somehow rigged the election. Again, this is a claim that just defies facts and logic. As you said, Joe, these accusations had serious effects on one of the employees that was targeted here, and he became the plaintiff in the case, the director of security, Eric Kumar. And he was forced, as you said, to live in hiding for months because of these false claims. So what is he to do and what is Dominion Voting Systems to do in the face of these lies? You use the law of defamation. You use the law of defamation to try and clear your name and clear the stench of this political disinformation in the process. So they filed a lawsuit. And what does defamation require? Defamation laws vary a little bit by state, but they generally require a false statement that harms someone's reputation. So you need to have communicated a false statement, have the correct state of mind, meaning you basically knew or had reason to know that the statement was false. In some cases, that state of mind varies a little bit, and that somebody suffered damages as a result. So the fact that Newsmax, in the face of this lawsuit, apologized is a big deal. It does show that defamation claims can lead to real action. All right. So it's obvious by this point that disinformation is an ongoing problem in our country. Now, we've discussed it a lot on Passing Judgment, and at least at our house, a lot at the dinner table. So how can defamation law be used to solve the problem of disinformation, Jessica? Well, it's one tool in the toolbox because the situation we have here is an example of how you can use defamation law and say, look, you said something that was not true. And the hope is that this case would have a chilling effect on the next Newsmax, on the next Sidney Powell, on the next Rudy Giuliani, that they would say, oh, these defamation suits are real. And maybe I'll think twice about that. Now, it's really far from a perfect tool because 
the disinformation is already out there. You're suing because by definition, there's already been a harm. So it's not preventative medicine. And what we really need in this situation is more preventative medicine. We also need to be careful when it comes to defamation that it's not used as a sword so that people don't use it as a threat against, for instance, local media outlets where they don't have a lot of money. They know that they didn't engage in defamation, but they also know it's going to take time and money and the access to an attorney to defend themselves against a defamation lawsuit. So we do need to be circumspect about thinking that defamation claims can be our silver bullet here. They're not. So Jessica, what do you think the end game is here? So the solution, of course, is a really difficult one, which is, yes, we have defamation for after-the-fact harms and hopefully as a deterrent effect, but the solution is you really have to address this on both sides. You need to somehow prevent people from peddling disinformation and maybe more to the point, help people not buy it. So stop selling it, but also stop buying it. We really need to engage in serious media literacy in our country. And I know that there are actually schools where they think about teaching this. They think about trying to educate the students from very early on about what's the indicia of reliable information. Um, So that's a lot harder. That's a lot less specific, but I think that's ultimately what we're going to need to do here. Thank you very much, Jessica. Let's move on. Our new attorney general, by our, I mean we United Statesians, we Americans, Merrick Garland, former Obama appointee to the Supreme Court, who was famously blocked by Mitch McConnell for the better part of a year, has now as AG, he's been quick out of the gate as Joe Biden's attorney general. Jessica, what are some of his biggest achievements so far, do you think? Well, a lot in not that much time. So there are now investigations as to whether or not there's a pattern or practice of discrimination in the Minneapolis and or Louisville police departments. He started prosecutions against police officers for using unreasonable force or abusing an arrestee. Uh, The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, as we've talked about, executed a search warrant at the home and office of the former president, former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who we just talked about above. Um, And that's an action that would have needed approval from the highest levels of the Department of Justice. And let's remember that was an action that reports indicate was blocked by Bill Barr's Department of Justice. What else has Merrick Garland done? He's broadened out the indictment against the men who allegedly plotted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. This indictment now includes the intent to use weapons of mass destruction. The indictment refers to the alleged acts as, quote, domestic terrorism. And what else? Garland's Department of Justice has issued hate crimes indictment against three Georgia men in connection with a February 2020 killing of Mr. Arbery, which we talked about last time. And we talked about the fact that that is a really big deal. So that's a lot in uh, just a few weeks. This is the recent news from Merrick Garland. Right. And he was confirmed kind of late. We're a hundred and some days into the Biden administration, but he did not assume the role of attorney general right out of the gate. He had to be approved and now he's off and running. So Garland joined the Justice Department after four years of politicization by the previous administration and multiple crises at home and abroad. So what are the big issues facing Garland as he takes on all these big issues? 
I mean, how long is the episode? So look, one of the huge questions is going to be, should former President Trump and or some of his aides face federal prosecution for violations of federal law? Uh, one of the people we're talking about, again, Rudy Giuliani, is he going to face federal charges? And should more people be prosecuted for the January 6th insurrection? How broad are they going to take this prosecution? Will they look at people who provided organizational or monetary support, who weren't necessarily there, but who facilitated the insurrection? What else is he going to be thinking about? How can he ensure that the Department of Justice is really an independent agency? How can he prevent the politicization of prosecutions? He's going to be looking at, should we revise the special counsel guidelines, something that we talked about a lot during the last administration? A lot of ways to, again, try and shore up the Department of Justice. Um, He's something else we talked about a lot in the past administration. Should the Department of Justice revise its guidance that sitting presidents should not face indictments? And then a few other matters. Should there be new legislation regarding domestic terrorists? How can the Department of Justice better track and prosecute hate crimes? We're seeing a horrifying rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. Uh, How can the Department of Justice best defend President Biden's executive actions on gun control? We could keep going, but those are just some of the things on his ever-growing plate. Yeah, that's a lot to fit on his attorney general baseball card. But let's add one more. With Georgia leading the way, there are 250, more than 250 voter suppression bills pending in more than 40 states. So what about this recent slew of restrictive voting rights laws, Jessica? So the Department of Justice can't prevent those laws from going into effect. That ability really died in 2013 with the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County that essentially eviscerated a part of the Voting Rights Act that allowed for something called preclearance, meaning certain states and localities could not implement changes to their voting laws unless those were pre-cleared with the federal government. Now we don't have preclearance, so these laws can go into effect, and then you later have to challenge them. That's a lot more difficult for challengers. So all of these things taken together, Jessica, what do you think Merrick Garland's ultimate goals are in his job? You know, I was thinking about this, and I actually think it's very similar to the speech that we saw from President Biden uh, just recently, where the speech, you know, it laid out a laundry list of things that President Biden wants to do. But it really was a speech saying to the American public, from my perspective, I'm going to show you American democracy works. I'm going to show you our government works. I think for Merrick Garland, it's actually quite similar. It's I'm going to restore faith in government and more specifically faith in our justice system, that we really should have equal justice under the law. That is a big goal. But if you listen to Merrick Garland's confirmation hearings, if you've seen what he's doing and what's on his plate, I suspect that is his overarching goal here. All right. Time will tell. We will keep an eye on him, see how he achieves those goals or if he achieves those goals. Let's move on, Jessica. We mentioned voting rights restrictions. Florida is the first swing state that voted for Trump to be on the verge of passing a new restrictive voting law. Now, in this case, it's different from Georgia's. What would Florida's new law do? 
So Florida's voting law looks similar to Georgia's law in some ways. It would add additional identification requirements for people who are requesting absentee ballots. Um, It would require voters to ask for an absentee ballot each election as opposed to just becoming a permanent absentee voter. Uh, It would limit the use of drop boxes. It would restrict the number of people who can collect and drop off ballots. Uh, It would give more power to partisan observers when ballots are counted. And um, it is important to remember, though, Florida will still have no excuse absentee voting. And there will be at least eight days of early voting in Florida. And I think you're going to see defenders of the law say, as they've said already, Yes, we are implementing some restrictions, but we still have, again, no excuse absentee voting and eight days of early voting. That doesn't mean, though, that they're not restricting what was available. And I think it's really hard for Republicans to say that there's a problem with a straight face, that there's a problem here for a couple of reasons. But one, President Trump won Florida. This is not a state that was, quote unquote, stolen. Um, And there's no evidence, again, no evidence of voter fraud in Florida. So perhaps from the Republican perspective, if it ain't broke, maybe you shouldn't try to fix it. So Jessica, in the midst of this pandemic, the 2020 election saw unprecedented numbers of voting by mail. How common is voting by mail in Florida as opposed to other states? It's very common. And I think that's why you see this bill targeting absentee voting. Again, increasing the voter ID requirements for asking for an absentee ballot, saying that uh, you can't have permanent absentee voters. And in 2016 and 2018, about a third of voters cast a vote by mail ballot. In, In those elections, more Republicans voted by mail than Democrats. Things flipped a little bit in 2020. The number grew and there were actually more Democrats than Republicans who voted by mail. And I suspect that may be why Republicans are now more comfortable uh, trying to restrict the vote by mail process. Now, 2020 was a weird election for you know so many reasons. But let's remember that the leader of the Republican Party, President Trump, despite the fact that he did vote by mail, said, we can't trust the vote by mail system. And he said this to his voters over and over again. And so this could have suppressed Republican turnout when it comes to vote by mail. And Democrats said to their voters, you can trust the vote by mail system, vote by mail. So that could have skewed things. It's a little too early to tell whether or not this is um, a pattern. All right. So you said the word suspect in there. So you've got some suspicions. What do you suspect is the justification for this law in real terms? So again, I know it's going to sound like a partisan statement, but I suspect that the answer is to make it difficult for some people to vote. And lawmakers themselves asked for data when they were deciding on whether or not to pass this bill. And the Republican-led House, the Public Integrity and Elections Committee, looked at the 2020 election, and they looked at past elections. And they just didn't find evidence of voter fraud. So it's difficult to say that there's a real problem here. I know that some of the supporters have said, well, I know we didn't find the evidence, but I know it's out there. I mean, again, it's a solution in search of a legitimate problem. 
As our friend Peter Tilden has said in the past, I know I'm wrong, but hear me out. So, Jessica, I think I have an idea of what your answer is going to be, but who will be the most heavily impacted if this gets signed into law? So the early indications are that it would be communities of color, um, particularly because of the restrictions regarding who can collect and drop off the ballots. And we know that in so many places in America, um, race is a proxy for partisan affiliation. Now, I do think we need to be really, really careful about that because minorities are not a monolith and members of any minority population themselves are not a monolith. But the early estimates are that it would affect communities of color more heavily. Okay, Jessica, all told, it seems that voting laws are akin to wars because once the bullets start flying, no one knows who's going to be killed. So how do you think this law could backfire? I do think that it could potentially backfire in part because these laws might energize the Democratic base and it might really lead to early organization when it comes to voter registration, when it comes to voter turnout. And again, it's not entirely clear that those trend lines for Democrats voting more in absentee ballots, Democrats voting more uh, using vote by mail will hold. So I, again, I know, I think I know where this law is coming from and what the intent is, but it's not a hundred percent clear to me that that will pan out. My suspicion, Jessica, is that Ense Ufot, who was a guest here on Passing Judgment from the New Georgia Project, has some phone numbers for activists in Florida. So it may rain on Republicans in a different way than they're expecting. So let's move on here. Let's talk about the Idaho transgender sports ban. We've been hearing a lot about laws banning transgender athletes from competing, and Idaho is just the latest state to attempt such a ban. Can you tell us about the specific law? What's at issue here? Yeah, so Idaho passed the nation's first transgender sports ban. As we said, the law would ban transgender women and girls from kindergarten through college from playing on teams that align with their gender identity, meaning from playing on women's teams. Um, The law never went into effect because it was challenged immediately and a district court judge issued an injunction and he said, look, I don't think that this is constitutional. It's not going into effect. All right, Jessica, so who is the plaintiff in this case and what are they arguing? So plaintiff is a transgender woman, Lindsay Hecox, and she was at Boise State University and she wanted to compete in women's sports. She ran track and cross country in high school for the boys team before she transitioned. Now she's going through hormone suppressing treatment and she said she's seen her athletic performance seriously decline as a result. Um, My understanding is she's not at Boise State University right now, um, that she left as a result of not being on the team, but her attorneys have said she might come back. That's important because that she might come back could keep the case alive. What she's arguing here is that there are 14th Amendment equal protection clause violations because the law is discriminatory. And Fourth Amendment violations of privacy because of tests that would be required if an athlete's gender is challenged. All right. So what about the defendants? Who's defending this law? So there are some organizations, conservative organizations and individual plaintiffs that are defending the law, essentially saying it's unfair to people who are born as women. 
um, that under Title IX, men and women's sports should be treated as different. And in fact, that that protects women. And that even with testosterone suppression, transgender women are at an advantage, something that the district court judge noted here is in dispute. But plaintiffs are also citing Title IX, again, that prohibits sex discrimination, saying that this is a law that harms women and girls. So we don't know um, how the court's going to rule. The district court in this case, as I said, issued an injunction, said the law is likely unconstitutional, said that there's a lot of dispute as to whether or not transgender women actually do have an athletic advantage, said Idaho's categorical ban, quote, stands in stark contrast to the policies of elite athletic bodies that regulate sports both nationally and globally. They're talking about organizations like the NCAA. And the district court judge said the law imposes on all women and girls the threat of intrusive and burdensome sex verification. And again, I'm quoting in part from that decision. So who are the Ninth Circuit judges that will decide this and why does that matter? Well, we always look at who the judges are and what their thought process is going to be when it comes to cases like this that are really matters of first impression. So the three-judge panel includes one judge who was nominated by President Reagan for the district court and then President George Herbert Walker Bush uh, to the Ninth Circuit, and then two Ninth Circuit judges who were nominated by uh, President Clinton. One of those judges actually two years ago ruled that under the Eighth Amendment, a prisoner has a right to sex reassignment. Now, that of course, those cases are different, but that could at least indicate how one of the judges is thinking. Um, based on reports from oral argument, not clear how the judges will rule, but as we said, they spent a lot of time talking about whether or not the case is still ripe because plaintiff is no longer currently a student at Boise State. And Judge Kleinfeld, uh, that's the judge who was nominated by President Reagan, suggested, in fact, that there might not be discrimination in this case. Apparently, he said, quote, anybody can play on the boys team, whether they're transgender or not. So we're looking at whether or not this case might be dismissed just on standing or procedural grounds. Um, and at least one judge floating the idea that maybe there isn't discrimination. So uh, we will see. Yeah. So Jessica, before we get on out of here, what are the potential consequences here? What, what about the ripple effect? Um, I mean, really big potential consequences. I think there are five other states that have similar laws. There are a number of states where there are similar bills pending. And it does feel like this decision is just destined for the Supreme Court. Um, I don't know if the Supreme Court will take this particular case or they might wait until other courts in other circuits hear the case and really let the lower courts kind of flesh out all of the arguments before they take it. But it does feel like in a later episode, we will be talking about the fact that this legal issue is before the Supreme Court justices. 
And that'll do it for today. Thank you so much, Jessica. Love hearing you expound on those things. Thank you to each and every one of our listeners for listening. Please follow, like, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Indepday. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find our lovely podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. It's also on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We've joined TikTok, so there's going to be some more content coming there sooner or later. As I said, thank you for listening. Be well, get vaccinated so I can see you at the pub. <laughs>